Isn't it so nice just to think about God and have God-centered music and God-centered words? Of all the things that we do and spend our time doing, I don't think that we can think about God enough and how truly powerful he is. And that's what we're going to be learning about today in the book of Jonah. If you can open up to Jonah chapter 1. going to be reading Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. The sermon today will be most of the book of Jonah. We're going to try to cover as much as we can today, but we'll start out today by reading Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray today. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your people who are gathered here today to worship and give praise to you. Thank you for this book that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for its sufficiency to help deal with all the problems that we have in this life, Lord. Help us to behold great things from your law. Help us to see you clearly from your word today. In your son's name I pray, amen. I wonder what you think about today when you think of heaven. What sort of place will it be? What will it be like? What will we do when we're in heaven? There's this um, expression that, that maybe you've heard from time to time. Don't give me a mansion, just give me a cabin in the corner of glory. And you know, this expression, it has the appearance of humility to it, that someone would not desire much, just a, just a little cabin, not the mansion. But you know, heaven, heaven is not about mansions or cabins. Heaven's about God. Heaven is a place where God is central. Maybe you just think about Revelation. Chapter 4, everything in heaven revolves around God and God who sits on his throne. Anyone who encounters God in the Bible, they always realize two things. Their own sinfulness and God's greatness. Maybe, maybe you think about John 17 today. Jesus says in John chapter 17 that he's come to give us eternal life. And how is that defined? Well, the next verse, John chapter 17, verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that you may know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. You see, eternal life, heaven, 
It's not about mansions. It's not about cabins. It's not about mansions or cabins in the corner of glory. It's about God, and it's about God's glory. You know that Moses, the chief goal of his life was to see God in his glory? And he asked him, God, please show me your glory. When we think about that expression I brought up, I I think it maybe is a bit blasphemous. That could be strong language, but doesn't it seem a bit blasphemous to say that you only want a little taste of God's glory? Is that it? Is that all we want? Just to be on the outskirts, on the edge of God's glory. I'll tell you, that's not a biblical view of heaven. Heaven's about God. In fact, it sounds a bit more like hell to me, honestly. You know, the book of Proverbs says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desires. You ever wonder why it's so hard to maintain good relationships today? Because it's hard. You put two selfish people under a roof together, what do you get? You get more selfishness, right? You get two people on the opposite side of the room, maybe? It's easy to to maintain acquaintances. That's easy. It's easy to be friendly from a distance. But when you have to live with someone, when you have to work with them, when you have to share close space with them, that can be a bit difficult. And that's why when you think about relationships today, when you think about human nature, we're fundamentally selfish. And that tends to pull us apart. It pulls us away from others. It pulls us away from God. Because we we like to do what we want to do. You know, and maybe we're tempted to think about heaven as this endless, eternal place where we can pursue our own desires. Maybe endless fishing or TV watching. I'm not sure what heaven is going to be like. But I I, I do know one thing, that that God will be central. You know, and heaven is not a place of isolation from God and others. Heaven is not some... Endless retirement, uh, endless retirement home, in the corner of glory somewhere. You know, hell is a place where where people are isolated from God and from each other. That's not heaven. Heaven is all about God. And God's given us His Word today. He's given us this book of Jonah. And this book is a book of hypocrisy. You have a man who looks like the people of God, who talks like the people of God, but who wants nothing to do with God's priorities. The book of Jonah is put in the Bible to help us to check our priorities today. And so we're going to go through this book today, and I want you to think about a few things. I want you to think about the things that make you exceedingly happy and the things that make you exceedingly sad. What would those things be? Think about those today as we go through this book. 
I'm going to start out and I'm going to summarize the book. We're going to go, we're going to give a brief summary of each chapter so that we can get the whole story in our mind. And then we're going to talk about a few things that, a few repeated themes that show up throughout this book. And so, first of all, let's start with a summary. How does it start? God speaks to Jonah and he says, arise and go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? Like a good prophet, he goes the opposite way. And goes down to Joppa. He gets on a ship going to Tarshish. As far away from God's command as he can go. And what happens? Well, God God hurls a great wind towards the prophet. He's on this boat trying to run from God. God sends a storm. Jonah goes to sleep. Captain comes, wakes him up, asks him what? Why are you sleeping? What does Jonah do? Jonah, Jonah tells them he knows that he's running away from, the, from God. He knows that this evil has come because of him. And so he asks him to throw him over the ship. Throw him over the ship. Throw him into the ocean. He knows that if that were to happen, the storm will stop. And so eventually, after some persuasion, the men throw him overboard. He's swallowed by a whale. You see that in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a picture of Jonah in the belly of this great fish, praying to God, asking him to deliver him from his distress. And God does. And Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, chapter 3. What happens? Well, he preaches to Nineveh. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people respond. The people respond. They repent. They turn from their evil ways. They turn from the violence which is in their hand. And they follow God. And like a good prophet, you would expect that Jonah would be happy about this. But it says in chapter 4, verse 1, that it was evil to Jonah. Great evil. And he was angry. Jonah was angry that these people had turned to the Lord. And so, in chapter 4, verse 1, God sent, or in chapter 4, God sends this great storm, this great scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah's head. And Jonah's miserable, and so God has compassion on him and, and, and sends him a plant to grow up on the ground to cover his head from from, from the scorching heat. And you know, Jonah's very thankful for this plant. He's very excited about this plant. And God takes the plant from him too. And so Jonah wants to die once more. And God, and God says to Jonah, Jonah, you know, you're, you're happy about this plant which you didn't work for, but I made, I made these people. There's more than 120,000 people who don't know their life, right hand from their left. I think what he's referring to there is infants and much livestock. Shouldn't I, I made these people. Shouldn't I be compassionate about the people? And you're compassionate over a plant. And that's the end of the story. I want you to think about today the God that's behind this story. 
If there's anything that Jonah does, it, it exalts God. Jonah exalts the creator God. And even, even Jonah knows this. Jonah knows that, that this God that he serves created the dry land and the seas. If you look in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 9 today, Jonah says this. These men are wondering who Jonah is, why this evil has come upon him. They just cast lots, and, and, and they're trying to figure out uh, on whose account this evil has come. And so it falls on Jonah, and they ask Jonah, you know, who are you, where are you from, what's your occupation, where's your land, what's your people? And Jonah says this in, in chapter 1, verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea... And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah knew his creator. And that's, and that's what we see when we think about Jonah. We, we, we're introduced to this sovereign Lord who is creator of all. We, we may say that we, we're introduced to this Lord who is sovereign over nature. But it's more than that. To say that God is sovereign is, is more than just saying that God created all and that God made all. Jonah knows that, and, and, and it is more than that, and Jonah knows that too. You see, sometimes we can think about God in this deistic kind of way. And what that means is deism is the belief that God created the world. He set the system in place. He set up some natural laws. He stepped back. And he's not involved anymore, just watches from a distance. But that's not the God that we see in Jonah. We don't see a God who just created things, and it's just sitting up in heaven and watching and seeing what will happen. We see a God who's actively involved in the world. So when we're talking about God and his sovereignty, we're not just saying that God created all and that God made all, but that he rules all and sustains all. All that we see belongs to him and is under his governance, power, and control. That's the God we see in the book of Jonah. And, and it's hard to miss this sort of God. This sort of God is sovereign over the winds. Jonah runs from God and God sends this great tempest towards their boat. He's not just in control of the winds over the sea, though, is he? He's, he also sends in chapter 4 this scorching east wind. This is a God who controls the weather and uses the weather to accomplish his purposes. Why? Well, he's the God who made the sea and the dry land, right? He's sovereign over the plants. You see in chapter 4 that he appoints this plant for shade for Jonah. He's sovereign over the wind. He's sovereign over the plants. He's sovereign over the animals. He appoints the great fish to come swallow Jonah. He's sovereign over the largest animals and even the smallest animals. He appoints a worm. He's sovereign over circumstances too, isn't he? Didn't he make the lot fall on Jonah? Was that an accident? And maybe, maybe even he's sovereign over people. Did he's sovereign over disobedient prophets? 
Jonah tried as he might to disobey the Lord. But God's purposes would be accomplished. With or without a good attitude, right? So we notice first when we're looking at this book, this sovereign God who's in control of this world. Second, we, we see that all are accountable to this sovereign Lord. The simple fact is, if God made you, you do not belong to you. The foundation for all ethics is to say that, that I don't own myself, that God made me, that I belong to him. If he made me, he has a right over me. I don't call the shots, he calls the shots. He defines right and wrong, I don't define right and wrong. Jonah doesn't define right and wrong. If God made you, you don't belong to you. And you know, everyone in the story realizes this. Nineveh, their evil, comes up before the face of God. And so he goes to pronounce judgment against them. You see, when we sin, it's not primarily against other people. It's primarily against God. We owe him a debt. The mariners realize this in their prayer. They're very concerned. They're very concerned to throw Jonah overboard. They say, do not lay on us innocent blood to the one they recognize as judge. They're concerned about their relationship with God. None of us are concerned about this. Even Jonah understands the situation he's in is because he is disobeying God who has rightful authority over him. And that includes us too. Doesn't it make a difference whether or not we are the product of time and chance or a sovereign Lord? I think it does. I think it does. If there is no God, I can do what I want. Isn't that true? But if God made me, as, a, as we've been saying, I don't belong to me. I belong to God. I'm here for his purpose, not for my own. Third thing we see here today is that all fallen short of God's standards. You know, Nineveh is, is described as a group of people whose way is evil, who have violence in their hands. They're a violent, guilty people. These mariners, they're idolaters. And shockingly enough, the most clear rebel in the story is Jonah, the prophet. And he knows the most about God's way and God's law. You know, Jonah tries to run from the presence of the Lord. Where does that take him? This, this expression, from, uh, away from the presence of the Lord, you see it repeating in chapter 1, verses 3, and chapter 1, um, in chapter 1, verses 10. Away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe you remember this expression. It's also in Genesis. It's also in Genesis. You know, after Adam and Eve sinned and ate the tree of 
ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you see that they, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And so they tried to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. And what happens? Well, they're cast out of Eden. And, and, and the verse says, away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe you could look that over if you have a chance. The same thing is said of Cain. After Cain murders his brother Abel, he's cast, uh, he's, he's sentenced to eternal wandering away from the presence of the Lord. This is a very distinct phrase. And what it means is this. To sin is to be separated from God. To be cast away from his presence. And what does that, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to death. Right? The penalty for sin is death. And certainly, certainly for a man who is running from God's presence, in this book we see him running from God, and the whole time he wants to die. But when he goes down into this belly of this fish in chapter 2, you, don't, you see a very clear picture of death. That's where sin will take us today. Maybe, maybe you're here today, and maybe you're running from God like Jonah. Maybe, maybe you're headed down a road that's taking you further and further away from God. I don't know what the specific sin is, but that, that's a miserable existence. I think it's easy to kind of laugh at Jonah, always asking to die. You know, you take Jonah's plant away from him and he wants to die. He's asking to die. And that can be kind of funny, but, but it's not funny. And it's not funny to him. And, and that's what happens when, when, we, when we cultivate sin in our heart. When we hold on to sin, when we know God's way and we run from it. God has a way of getting our attention. Sometimes it just gets worse and worse and to the point where, you know, maybe death would almost seem preferable to life. Maybe someone's here today and who can identify with what I'm saying. And if that's you, don't stay there. There's great hope today. We know that there's a sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. We know that everyone is accountable to this God and that all have fallen short of this standard. We know that the penalty for our rebellion is death, but the truth is that God is a gracious God. A lot of times when you hear Jonah preached, it's preached in the context of racism. And I'm not sure that that's the point today. I I think that the issue is hypocrisy. I think many times we can assume that Jonah is an angry racist who can't stand the thought of Gentiles being saved because they're Gentiles. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But I, I don't think the text gives us anything to suggest that. And so it could be true, but I, I don't... I don't see it in the text. What, what I think is clear from the text is that Nineveh is an exceedingly wicked city. When you look at the opening chapter, their evil has come up before the face of God, chapter 1. When you look at chapter 3, what do you see? Well, 
You see this issue from the, uh, this proclamation issued from the king saying, turn from your evil ways and from the violence in your hands. We know they're a wicked, evil city. And I think the issue here for Jonah is one of justice. I think it's one of justice. Because if you look at, if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented to the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so then chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, uh, the ESV says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You know, uh, the Hebrew is a little uh, different. It says, and it was evil to Jonah, exceedingly evil. I think to Jonah the issue is that is one of justice. These are evil people. Now, whether or not he was, whether or not he was a racist uh, Jew, that's you know maybe. But I think it's how can you how can you save evil people, God? How can you save evil people? And that's why, with everything else in the passage, I think it's an issue of hypocrisy. You know the. The essence of hypocrisy is wanting everyone to get what they deserve. Okay? The problem with hypocrisy, though, is the fact that the hypocrite doesn't realize what he deserves. Right? And I think that's the case with Jonah. Jonah is a, is a hypocrite. You know, Jonah's problem is not a problem of knowledge. Jonah knows more than everyone in the book knows. Jonah knows more than the mariners know. Jonah knows more than the people of Nineveh know. But in the story, he's the least like God, isn't he? You know, God's a compassionate God. Jonah, he only cares about himself, right? Maybe you think about uh, this storm that head, headed towards this ship that he's on. And you think about all these pagan sailors who are throwing cargo overboard in order to lighten the load. And what is Jonah doing? He decides to take a nap. And God's a compassionate God. Jonah's very selfish. And, and you know, you would think that the pagans would be angry at him for his selfishness. But what do they do? They Instead, they heroically rode towards the land to save him. And they, they seem very reluctant to throw him overboard. Jonah, on the other hand, he could care less. Let them all die, right? They're a bunch of wicked pagans. You know, God's a saving God. But Jonah wants no one to be saved but himself. 
Isn't it kind of strange to compare Jonah's prayers? If you compare his prayer in chapter 2 and his prayer in chapter 4, there's a bit of irony there. In chapter 2, we have this wonderful prayer of praise and thanksgiving, extolling the mercy of God and delivering him from the belly of the fish, from the belly of death. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me from this miserable situation. But then when you read chapter 4, verse 2, his prayer to the Lord is this, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That you would save these sinful people is what he's saying. You know, Jonah's fine being saved from this fish. He doesn't want anyone else to be saved, though. Can't we be a bit like this ourselves sometimes? Oh, thank you, Lord, for your wonderful deliverance for saving me from hell. Only to find ourselves grabbing our neighbor by, our, by their throat. You know, the heart of hypocrisy, as I've been saying, is the desire that everyone gets what they deserve. But the problem is that the hypocrite doesn't see how little he deserves. And this is Jonah, a man who wants everyone to get what they deserve and fails to understand of all the people in the story, he's the one who is so clearly at odds with God's purposes. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes the opposite way. You know the pagans Jonah hates so much? They obey God. They go out of their way to obey God. Jonah knows the right things to say, though, doesn't he? I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And that's obviously true. If anyone were to look at Jonah, they would definitely notice that, that, that of all the people, he fears the Lord. In truth, though, it's the pagan mariners who are described as fearing the Lord greatly, isn't it? Not Jonah. Jonah just says it. You know, the people of Nineveh, they all turn from their wicked way, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth and ashes, sit on ashes, they proclaim a fast. And yet, you know, Jonah, he rejoices with great rejoicings over a plant. <laughs> but the truth is, God has come to save sinners, isn't it? Of the worst sort and the worst kind. But God will save no one until they see themselves as sinners. The mariners, you know, they knew they were sinners. The people of Nineveh, they understood their way was perverse, and they begged for mercy. You know, this book is a picture of the gospel. The truth is that God created mankind, and mankind has rebelled against his creator, and the penalty for that is death. I asked you at the beginning of the sermon to think about your priorities. What do you delight in? Do you delight in the salvation of the wicked? Do we delight in walking in integrity before God, who sees all? Are we casting ourselves on the mercy of a gracious God?
Or is our faith set in opposition against God today? Do you hear his word and want nothing to do with it, and yet still see yourself as being okay because you grew up in the church and maybe you're baptized, maybe because you prayed some prayer, walked some mile somewhere along the line, and yet you're running from God today in your heart? Are you harboring some sin in your life that you don't want to get rid of? I think Jonah teaches us that the way of the transgressor is hard and that God will do what it takes to get our attention. You know, maybe, maybe you have doubts today about where you stand before God. If so, there's good news. The gospel's for sinners. God's the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament, isn't he? We don't want to say he changed. Jonah knew he was a gracious and compassionate God. Even the people of Nineveh knew that maybe he would relent and turn from the disaster that he's predicted. You know, the gospel's for sinners. Jesus mentions this verse in Matthew twelve forty. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What a gracious act to send this prophet to preach this message. God is a seeking God. He seeks the sinners where they're at. And he says to them, destruction is coming. But if you repent, you may not face the wrath, right? Because God's a gracious God who delights in saving sinners. You know, Jonah's descent into the heart of the earth And his deliverance is a picture of Christ dying on the cross. Three days later, rising again. In order to provide a similar message as Jonah. There's two sorts of errors I find that we can make when we think about salvation today. And one is the error of hypocrisy. Okay? That's the error that that's the error where the sinner wants justice for everyone and refuses to recognize his dire need of salvation. And I, I think I think we're pretty good with this one many times. The way we handle people, I think that many times we can assume that everyone is in this state where they don't want to admit that they're a sinner, and so the goal of gospel preaching is to get them to recognize that you're a sinner. And then if I can just get you to recognize you're a sinner and ask God to have mercy on you, that's the goal. And that's part true, isn't it? And there are many people who don't see themselves as sinful. And so when we try to persuade them to come to God... We're trying to convince them that you're an idolater. You need God. You've broken God's law. Please come to Christ today. Recognize your sinfulness. And that's true. There are people that are, that are there. But then the other error is easy believism. And I think this describes Jonah pretty well, too. You see, Jonah knows all the right facts, doesn't he? Jonah knows his Bible. He knew that there was a God who created him. He knew that, that God 
that this God was the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God. He knew that if he ran from God, God would chasten him. He knew that this God was gracious, merciful, compassionate, and delighting in saving sinners. This God actually saved him from the belly of this fish. And he knew that if he would just pray and ask God, please save me from the fish, that God would do it, and God did. Jonah knew the right facts. But you know, Jonah didn't want anything to do with repentance either, did he? Jonah wanted his fire insurance, I think, if we could think about it that way. Save me from the the belly of the fish. Save me from the belly of shale. Save me from hell, Lord. All the while not realizing that he's a sinner, right? But I think many of us, we can be this way too. We we, We can want God to deliver us from hell because hell's a scary place. I don't think we want to think about hell. Of all the things that are pleasant and delightful to think about, that's not one of them. And so I don't think we want to think about hell. I think we want to maybe think about other things. But but sometimes when it's quiet and maybe we're forced to think, that is a pretty scary thought to think that maybe we could perhaps be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever where the worm dies not. That's not a good thought. And so we can say, you know, God, get me out of this place. Get me out of this predicament, Lord. Oh, I know I'm evil, Lord. Get me out of this place, Lord. But then we don't want to give our lives to the Lord, do we? Sometimes not. Sometimes it's get me out of hell, get out of hell free card or something. Get me out of hell, let me live how I want to, Lord. And yet, when you look at the book of Jonah, these people who are genuinely converted in the story, it's not just a knowledge issue, is it? It's not just Jonah came to the pagans to give them the right doctrine. The right doctrine is good and right, but... What did they do? Well, they turned from their evil way and the violence which was in their hand. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth. They sat in ashes. They repented, right? Same thing is true of the mariners. They see this God who's in such control over the sea, such that they can throw this man into the sea and the sea stands still. And what do they do? They, they They pray to God. They sacrifice, sacrifice. They vow vows. You see, the people in Jonah, they understand repentance. And I think sometimes when we live on this side of the cross, we can, we can make a, a schizophrenic sort of God, a God who, who all of a sudden has changed, and all of a sudden, you know, now he's gracious, and now, now in, in these last days after Christ, he's a gracious God, and, and he kind of winks at sin, and... Just come to me, you know, keep your sin, that sort of God. But yet he's the same God here. He's still a merciful God in Jonah, isn't he? He's a merciful God, but he asked people to repent, to turn from their sins. And I, I don't think that we can separate the two. And if you really think about the message of Jonah is repent and believe 
in a gracious, saving God, isn't it? And that's the same message we see in the New Testament. You know, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and what does he say? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when he comes and follows him, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Mark 3, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. The message has always been the same. Repent and believe of the gospel. Believe the gospel. It's clearer nowadays. We know clearer what the gospel is. It is about Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on this on the cross. But all I'm trying to say here is that that Jesus Christ did not come to die on a cross to create little Jonas, right? Who know everything, who know the right facts, but want nothing to do with God's commands. They want nothing to do with God's way. They want nothing to do with God's purposes. They don't delight in the salvation of sinners, do they? In fact, they love their comfort, and they're, they're exceedingly happy and excited over plants that provide them shade. And I think that goes back to what we started the sermon with. What are the things we delight in? What are the things, what are our priorities? How are we coming to the Lord? You know, do we come holding on to our things and holding on to our desires and holding on to our comfort and holding on to what our view of right and wrong is? Or do we come empty-handed and say, God, I, I'm a pitiful wretch. But you can take my life and change it, right? And that's what the, the pagans knew in the story, didn't they? They knew they couldn't just, just offer God lip service and say, oh, God, we're sorry. That should count for something, right? That's not what they did. They turned from their way. And so I, I think we have to be sensitive to the different sorts of people who we're speaking to today. Because there are definitely those people who don't realize that they're sinners. And we definitely need to persuade them that they're sinful and idolaters. But then there are the other people who know they're sinners, but don't want to give up their sin. And we have to speak to that too. The message is always the same. Die to yourself, take up your cross daily, follow God, right? Come to God for mercy. You can't earn it, right? You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You can't earn. You can't earn it. Don't pres- don't presume on God either, right? And this is a message that's very dear to my heart. I grew up in the, I grew up in the South. I know what cultural Christianity is like. The sort of Christianity that's happy if you pray the prayer and walk the Nile, and that's it. That's it. You just say the right facts, we'll give you a check mark, we'll never talk to you again. But that's not a biblical view of salvation. we got to preach both, repent and believe. And I don't know where you're at today. But if you're running from your sin like Jonah, turn to God. He's a gracious and good God. Don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it. Don't continue your rebellion. It'll get worse and worse. It'll get worse and worse. You know, heaven is a place where 
God is central. And you know, First John says this. We don't know we don't know what he'll be like. Christ when he returns. We don't know what he'll be like, but we know that when he's revealed, we'll be like him. Right? And that should be the heart of every Christian. A desire to be like God, to to conform to his character. Right? Let's pray today. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've done for us, for delivering us from uh, the kingdom of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of light. Help us to be the kind of people who want to know you, that our chief desire is to know you and to see your glory, Lord. Help us not to be the, the sort of people that would be content to be on the outskirts of your glory, but help us to be the, the type of people who want nothing more than to see you exalted and lifted up. Help us to be those sort of people, Lord, that, that you couldn't pay us to stay away from you, Lord, that we have to see you, that we have to be near you, that we have to be close to you, Lord. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord, that, that have died to ourselves, Lord, daily, and repenting and believing the gospel, Lord, that you did the work on the cross that we can't do. Thank you for your sacrificial death, Lord. Help us not to trivialize it. Thank you for this church and for all the people here that praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.